everyone, and welcome to the Nature's Mic podcast. In today's episode, we'll be exploring Yellowstone National Park with our guest, Ranger Sarah. Sarah has been working for one season at Yellowstone National Park and loves spending time there and educating guests about the park itself. Hey, Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Evan? I'm doing amazing. So Yellowstone, not only is it just such a unique park, but it's really... It's really like it has that historical significance, which I think helps to set it apart from other parks. But I kind of want to dive into to maybe you and yourself. So how did you kind of get interested in a career at Yellowstone National Park? Yeah, definitely. Um, had kind of a circuitous career path so far. I originally was introduced to working with the Park Service through our High School Youth Conservation Corps, or YCC, program uh, when I myself was, I believe, a junior in high school. Um, the program is still running. Uh, basically, high schoolers age 15 to 18 can come work in the park and live here. It's residential and get paid to do projects here alongside park rangers for about 30 days or so. Um, and that was kind of my first foray into la- public lands management and kind of what it looks like to do field work. Um, I then, you know, got a biology degree and kind of muddled around in forest service and nonprofit-based work, and yeah, ended up kind of finding my way back to education and that intersection of outdoor education and working with classrooms with the park service. Awesome. That's great to hear. So that program really kind of helped you launch your interest into working with the Park Service? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Great to hear. So like I was talking about Yellowstone, it's such a unique park. And this is is kind of a generic question. It might be hard to answer in one specific way. But what do you think, since since you've worked there for some time now, what do you think uh, sets Yellowstone apart from other national parks since there's so many out that way. Yeah, totally. Um, I think, I mean, to start with, uh, the pitch is Yellowstone, oldest and best uh, of the national park system. We were America's first, and so there is a very long history of both American and Euro-American history here, but also, um, I mean, Yellowstone has been a place for ceremonies and rituals for up to 27 different indigenous tribes for over 11,000 years. You know, the, the number increases uh, the more accurate our archaeological dating processes become. Um, and so I think just that diversity of human history, in addition to the diversity of ecosystems and wildlife we have here, you know, um, every park, I think, is, you know, famed for having an intact, you know, ecosystem and intact habitats for their wildlife. But Yellowstone's just diversity from, you know, borderline desert to alpine to, Alpine screen or riparian and lake ecosystems, um, I think, is kind of what draws a variety of visitors um, and what allows such a diversity of wildlife to thrive here year-round. And yeah, I would just say generally (laughs) the diversity of history, wildlife, and ecosystems kind of all go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I I kind of I, I wasn't totally aware of the uh, kind of ancient human significance with it, but it's interesting mm-hmm. that Yellowstone can be such a magnet not only for wildlife but also for humans as well. Um, that's Absolutely. that's very interesting. Do, like, so is there any way you could 
go more into about maybe the Native American history of that region? Like, you know, obviously you're not an anthropologist or anything. Were there a lot of uh, kind of tribes con- concentrated around that region? Uh, you know? Um, yeah, what's interesting is, you know, and I'm sure, you know, as we study more and learn more of the indigenous histories coming to light, uh, these numbers will change, but of those, you know, 27 or so currently recognized tribes um, with historical affiliations to Yellowstone National Park. Um, some of them are pretty regional, you know, uh, wind tribes that are currently located on the Wind River and Blackfeet Reservation, you know, Salish Kootenai, uh, but also as far as certain tribes located in South Dakota. And those trading networks um, you know, extend even beyond that. You know, those relationships that were here long before European-American colonization of the West, um, they've found obsidian that, you know, using kind of those, uh, you know, chemical analysis techniques, they've um, tracked obsidian airheads and other pieces of obsidian as far as the Ohio River Valley that they believe was sourced from obsidian cliff and other, you know, lava flow-based obsidian uh, mining areas in the Yellowstone National Park. Um, So those historical affiliations are, they're not only, you know, per the Intermountain West region, but much broader um, in terms of geographic extent. Interesting. It's it's very, it's interesting to know how uh, kind of the human connection has been there for so many thousands of years. Uh, it kind of makes it that much more of a special place in a way, really. So, yeah, absolutely. So Yellowstone, it gets, I know that it gets pretty cold there in the winter months and can get pretty freezing. Are there people that still visit it for maybe like recreational or wildlife viewing or like, how does how does the winter months differ from the summer months in terms of visitation? Yeah, definitely. Um, with the influx of you know better uh, snow access technology, I do believe uh, winter visitation has increased, usually through guided tours. Um, you know, again, like you said, for wildlife watching or other um, you know guidable snow recreation, like cross country skiing or snowshoeing. Um, wolf watching is yeah still pretty big in the winter, photography, etc. Um, although there are a limited number of individual snowmobile permits that are issued every year, um, but they are pretty limited. Um, most of them go out to um, kind of contractors in the like local um, tour companies in the area that kind of want to take guests during the winter. Interesting. So I didn't. But, re- yeah, vegetation oh. definitely is lower than it is in the summer. Okay, it but, does exist in the winter. Right, I didn't know that. I didn't know that people go wolf watching and and snowmobiling and skiing. That's it's very interesting to know. Kind of, um, you know, the different activities that are available uh, after the seasons change in that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and there's a kind of been a long history they believe of snow use as well. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that. Uh, and it, you know, the evidence goes in both directions. You know, it did or it didn't happen. But some anthropological researchers and archaeologists think that even indigenous groups might have accessed the lake when it was still iced over in the late spring um, to get to some of those farther out islands on Yellowstone Lake. But hmm. yeah, interesting. So you know, we've been mm-hmm. talking a lot about all the people that have been coming there for so long and that are still coming there. Um, do you see the National Park Service? Do they maybe see the kind of continuously growing number of 
visitors as maybe a, a potential problem or a potential hazard for managing the park itself? Um, you know, I think you can view the growing uh, visitation numbers as kind of a dual uh, conundrum. Uh, you know, of course, we it raises issues with staffing for emergency services or parking or you know, just making sure we have enough people and access on the roads to keep all of our visitors safe. On the other hand, um, you know, the purpose of a public land of a national park is to be accessible for not just people in this area, but you know, people across America, across the world. Uh, it's here to be accessed. Um, and historically, that accessibility hasn't been super high. Um, and so, you know, of course, you can get into the details of how, you know, 5 million visitors this year versus like what it was in 1988 or 1972, how many people were visiting Yellowstone, but who had access to Yellowstone and who had the ability to travel versus the you know, wider demographic of what the American population looked like in those days. Um, you know, as we've kind of made more efforts at getting, you know, people of color, people of different income levels, or people with different, you know, ADA accessibility or ABA accessibility levels um, into parks, you know, of course, that visitation number is going to increase. And so I think uh, from a management perspective, um, you know, superintendents and people at the higher level might instead try to view it not as a problem, but as an opportunity to investigate uh, greening our transportation infrastructure, you know, balancing, you know, do we pave more roads or do we invest in, um, you know, like Zion and Yosemite have done in shuttle systems or do we, you know, look into what Glacier has done and in order to, you know, keep those visitor counts within safe numbers per day, kind of having people register um, for what days they'll come into the park to kind of spread out that visitation instead of crowding it all around in the month of, you know, two weeks in August and July. Um, and so, yeah, I think it definitely poses a lot of questions for how we can manage it safely for both our resources, our wildlife, and our visitors. Um, but I do think the increased accessibility and increased visitation to national parks, especially Yellowstone, um, just presents a lot of opportunities for how we can sustainably um, investigate accessibility in the long term. Mm. So it's kind of good to know that the way the park is already set up sort of helps with the accessibility of guests and using that accessibility to kind of help solve any potential issues that may arise? That and also I think um, inviting conversations on how to improve accessibility. So uh, during the summers, you know, currently I work as an education arranger, but during the summers I still work with our YCC program now as a crew leader. Um, one of our projects was actually uh, helping uh, some Rangers in the Canyon area redo a amphitheater to be ADA accessible, um, which it currently wasn't before, which of course means that people who might have physical disabilities related to or differently able people who might not be able to walk on steep slopes, you know, the elderly or people who might use a walker wheelchair. Um, and so, you know, one of our projects was to help tear out um, existing you know, benches and um, asphalt in that area to help further along um, that project for getting people with different abilities, um, accessibility to ranger programs and other educational talks. Um, of course, you know, 
national park. It's one thing to look at trees. It's another thing to understand the ecosystem that you're stepping into and become a part of. Um, so yeah, I think you can argue that it's, uh, using existing accessibility built into that figure eight loop road in Yellowstone. But I think also the increase in visitation invites, um, pressure to, you know, further that mission to create more accessible and equitable outdoor spaces. Interesting. Yeah, that example that you used about removing the benches, that, that was a very interesting story. Um, <laughs> it's, it's good to know that uh, the Park Service is looking out for groups of people like that who may also want to partake in the benefits and opportunities that the park has to offer as well. So going back to some of the features in the park, I know that one of the things that makes the park unique is the presence of the geysers. And, you know, I mean, Old Faithful is such an icon. If, if you ever look up anything about national parks or read anything about national parks, you're bound to see something on Old Faithful. So what is kind of the relationship between the geysers and the wildlife of the park do do uh does the wildlife do they generally kind of tend to stay away from the geysers or do they maybe sort of interact with them a little bit in some way or how, how does that relationship work totally yeah so you know i'll expand this question to not just be about wildlife and geysers but wildlife and our thermal features generally so mm -hmm. geysers mud pots and fumaroles and hot springs um, I think, for the most part, wildlife don't really, I mean, they can't drink the water, it's really hot, it's acidic. During the winter, I think, is when more, you know, visible to the public eye type interaction happens. Um, those features will tend, especially hot springs and fumaroles, will tend to keep uh, vegetation nearby um, more accessible to animals that might not be as well equipped to kind of brush away snow. Um, from, you know, low-lying herbaceous vegetation. Um, so you might see more of our ungulates or hooved species accessing those areas to feed. Um, of course, some animals um, aren't as lucky, and, you know, we do warn our visitors, you know, the crust isn't stable. Temperatures can change at random. And so yeah, sometimes there will be animal carcasses found um, during the winter or, you know, when certain areas are accessible again during the springtime um, from just creatures that, you know, oh, this warm water. Um, and then, you know, of course, Yellowstone's uh, thermal areas are still pretty active and actively changing, and some bison and deer aren't as lucky as others. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think the main interaction with wildlife would be our thermophilic um, mats. Um, so you might be able to read about this a little bit more online, but in those kind of runoff areas from geysers and hot springs, you know, you see those beautiful colors when you look up Grand Prismatic Spring, uh, the oranges and the greens and the blues. And those are, of course, you know, living bacteria, archaea, and other microorganisms. So there's actively species living in there and, you know, adapting every day uh, to those pHs and temperatures. And uh, you might sometimes see in the mammoth terraces where there's a little bit more runoff space for that water to cool. Um, you know, it's still not safe for people to walk on it, but you might see elk during the rut um, sometimes, you know, sit on them or walk through there um, at their own risk. Um, and some smaller species of birds will sometimes, um, you know, when those hot springs dry up and move, they'll build their nests into them or 
you might see them kind of walking around on the ridges because they're so lightweight that they can kind of balance where there's not a lot of hot water moving. Mm -hmm. So does the, I'm sorry, I went totally blank there. What was I going to (laughs) say? The, uh, so with the springs and and like you talked about the bacteria living in the springs, like Mm -hmm. Grand Prismatic Spring, except for animals or except for wildlife, you know, uh, potentially kind of moving through there, does the bacteria in there, do they largely kind of stay unharmed since there's so much acidic water around and, and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, typically they're not, that I know of, I don't believe they're a major food source for anything larger than maybe a certain species of insect. Um, they kind of have their own communities and ecosystems within those hot springs and runoff areas. Um, and uh, this actually just struck me. It's not quite what your question was asking, but there it. are certain insects and flora that have adapted to thermal areas. So areas where the ground itself is hotter or, you know, not as nutrient dense. Um, you know, our lodgepole pines are some of the only trees that will grow, you know, adjacent to, um, you know, hot spring or other, you know, thermal basins in Yellowstone. And there is a species of monkey flower, yellow monkey flower, that they believe there might, they're still doing research to, you know, see whether it's its own species or just the same as what grows in other parks, but there's a potential subspecies of yellow monkey flower that they think might be um, adapting to the thermal basins here, um, but, you know, to be confirmed, to be continued by researchers at some of the universities in the area, and there's They've identified a few species of mosquitoes whose larvae seem to concentrate more in thermal runoff water, so hot water and warm water, as opposed to kind of the other springs um, in surrounding forests um, that might not be warm. Um, that is fascinating. I was not, I was not aware of that <laughs> uh, research, but that's very interesting to see how the geysers kind of have an effect on uh, the potential wildlife and and flora and fauna that live around it. But uh, that's very interesting. Totally. Thank you for sharing that. So are there, or like, what are the common methods that uh, the National Park Service uses for kind of uh, managing interaction between humans and wildlife? Because obviously that's a, a very kind of potential I don't want to say problem, but maybe a potential problem or just a a thing that needs to be kind of managed in a way. So what are the common methods that uh, the National Park Service might go about um, helping to kind of maintain that relationship? Between humans and wildlife? Correct, yes. Yeah. Um, I think some of the methods have a lot to do with researching wildlife behavior and keeping our wildlife research projects up and running and up to date and kind of and making sure to always loop in kind of that social aspect into the appropriate projects. I also think um, education is one of the park's biggest forays currently, trying to get signage into multiple languages where possible. Again, that project of increasing accessibility, so it extends not just to ADA accessibility or socioeconomic accessibility, but also language barriers. So in some of the more popular basins like Norse, you might see Spanish or Chinese signs, uh, Mandarin, I should say, um, for the specific uh, dialect. Um, and of course, you know, as we get more visitors from other um, major um, you know, 
language linguistic regions. Um, I hope that that signage and you know for sure accessibility increases. Um, otherwise, you know efforts to just keep enough staff on hand to patrol, um, especially the geyser basins where you know it's not exactly wildlife, but it is a really common area where wildlife might wander into and people are already drawn to kind of step off the boardwalks mm -hmm. during the spring with bison calves um, or during the fall with elk rut season. Um, there is an increased likelihood of visitors wanting to interact with the wildlife that, you know, suddenly is out in the open, you know, nursing their babies in mammoth or trying to mate in mammoth, um, which is one of our more popular entrance towns or locations. Um, and so in those times of year, we have increased staff presence um, and increased collaboration between um, different departments like law enforcement and our interpretive rangers and the guys in the flat hats. And again, just trying to kind of shepherd people and watch them and make sure they're not doing anything that could harm them or the wildlife. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a great thing that you mentioned too about the education factor. And I think Yellowstone's great at um, really educating the proper uh, techniques and things that people want to do when trying to maintain that relationship with wildlife. So going back to kind of you and, and, and talking about your connection to the park. So, this, this may sound a little corny a little bit, but um, as a park ranger, what is your favorite part about being able to work at, at such an incredible place like Yellowstone National Park? Um, I think one of my favorite parts of living in the park is probably just the ease of access to well-maintained nature. <laughs> I mean, I think as a person who works here, um, it's really common to find people who like spending time outside, whether that be hiking or just, you know, painting um, in, you know, picnic area or going for a swim. Um, I really appreciate having that for my personal life. Um, in my professional sphere, one of my favorite parts of working in Yellowstone is the variety of youth that I get to interact with um, during the summer. Um, again, with the YCC program, you know, those high schoolers might be anywhere from the Great Plains in a public school, um, or they might attend, you know, a private school in New England. Um, and so just youth of all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and during the fall and spring, um, that is that diversity is, you know, more concentrated in the Intermountain West region. Um, but, yeah, just the different stories that, and life lessons that I get to learn from the people I work with on a daily basis would be my favorite aspect of working here yeah that's very that's very interesting i'm sure that's a very kind of you know fortunate opportunity that, that you get as being an employee there so since you've worked at the park at some time or maybe this is from a time when you didn't directly work at the park but do you have any sort of core memories associated with the park that you'll probably remember for years to come that are specific to yellowstone national park that you can think of yeah, um, I think, I mean, one of my earliest memories of visiting Yellowstone is probably getting to learn about this place with my family when I was still maybe in first or second grade, just on, you know, a family road trip and getting to see, um, you know, geysers and hot springs for the first time. And I can still remember being like super scared that I was going to drop a stuffed animal into the mammoth hot springs. And, mm -hmm. you know, like being in the middle of the boardwalk, far away from the edges, 
um, and, you know, getting mad when my parents wanted to take pictures of stuff. Um, I think that was definitely, you know, formative, um, but still pretty blurry memory. I think um, for memories that are more recent, I had the opportunity to work on a trail work project uh, down near Lone Star Geyser. So in that kind of broader Old Faithful region of the park, so south, western more or less, um, with a YCC crew and just getting to watch them like be silly and have fun in the backcountry um, when some of them had never really been camping before um, was really special getting to just share that with them and yeah. Yeah, that's that's some those are some great uh stories. Yeah, I'm sure those are some core memories, especially uh to have it with with people working in the park too, uh you know, sharing a passion that you have and just kind of bonding in that way in a sense. So, this question, it's a pretty abstract question and maybe maybe you might have to think about it a little bit. That's okay. So, if you were trying to, you know, describe uh Yellowstone to a person, and who had never been there, uh, and you could only use maybe like one sort of word to describe it, what would that word be? I think I might defer to the word Wonderland. Um, it used to be a, I mean, the legend goes that it used to be a nickname for Yellowstone National Park. Um, and I think it is still pretty apt today, even as a descriptive word. Just, again, that variety of ecosystems, but also geologic wonder, um, you know, highest concentration of thermal features in the world, um, largest geyser in the world, uh, some of the hottest hot springs and most acidic features in the world and the country. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, you know, intact, um, complex and multi-layered, you know, I don't want to use the word ecosystem again, but ecosystem, um, and the myriad of relationships between humans and wildlife and wildlife and their surroundings here. I think there isn't really a better word that I can think of off the top of my head than that to kind of encompass all of that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's great. I, I don't think I could have come up with a better word myself. That was, that was perfect. Well, thank you very much, Ranger Sarah. I really appreciate your time and telling us about Yellowstone and, you know, educating us more about what's in the park and, how our relationship with the park kind of plays into it and telling us about your experiences with it as well. I really appreciate you stopping by and educating us about that. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, you have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you very much. Good luck with uh, the rest of your interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Nature's Mike podcast. Today we've done some great exploring of Yellowstone National Park with our guest, Ranger Sarah. Join us next time as we explore another one of America's spectacular national parks. <laughs>